I am so thankful for my wife and children. To enjoy their love, confidence, and support is one of the greatest blessings of my life. I express my heartfelt gratitude to parents who loved and lived the gospel and also to my brothers and sisters from whom I have learned so much. I thank my brethren of the general authorities for their kind and gentle tutoring. I express my gratitude to all with whom I worked over the years and to those who expressed their love and support for me in this new calling. I go forward with faith in the Lord and His leaders, relying on the promises of the Lord that we do not receive callings such as these, but what we have been foreordained to the same. I love the scriptures. I testify that they are the word of God. I have likened a verse from Alma to my life. The scriptures have had a great tendency to lead me to do that which is just. Yea, they have had a more powerful effect upon my mind than the sword or anything else which has happened unto me. Therefore I have tried the virtue of the word of God. President Benson counseled, Immerse yourselves in the scriptures daily so you will have the power of the Spirit. President Kimball said, I find that when I get casual in my relationship with divinity and when it seems that no divine ear is speaking or no divine voice is speaking, that I am far, far away, if I immerse myself in the scriptures, the distance narrows and the spirituality returns. While presiding over a South American mission, I traveled to a distant city to interview missionaries, hold a zone conference, and conduct a district conference. I discovered among the missionaries some problems. In the district conference, other serious problems dealing with members and leaders surfaced. In my mind, the negative outweighed the positive with both missionaries and members leaving me frustrated and disappointed. After four days of interviews and meetings, I boarded the airplane with a heavy heart to return home. I often read scriptures while traveling, and I turn to them for comfort and direction. I read a few of my favorite passages. While turning the pages, I stopped at the third section of the Doctrine and Covenants. I was deeply touched by the first five verses as they applied to my concerns. When I read a verse, I often insert my name in it. I did so with verse 5 and found the help I needed to remove my gloomy feelings. Behold, you, J. Jensen, have been entrusted with these things, but how strict were your commandments! And remember also the promises which were made to you, J. Jensen. The words, Remember also the promises, struck me with unusual power. I identified with the Prophet Joseph Smith when he read James 1.5. The words, Remember also the promises, seemed to enter into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on them again and again. During those four days, I had focused on nothing but problems. I had not stopped to consider one single promise. I had with me on the airplane that day a copy of my patriarchal blessing. I read it noting several marvelous promises. I reviewed in my mind the promises given to me when I was set apart as a mission president. I turned to additional scriptures and pondered the promises in each one. I learned then and have had reinforced to me again and again that when we search the scriptures, we will come to know 
that they are true and faithful, and the promise, prophecies and promises which are in them shall all be fulfilled. The Lord has promised us specific blessings for reading and studying the scriptures. To identify these promises, a helpful exercise for me has been to, to make two columns on a sheet of paper, and at the top of one column write the words, Promises for this life, and in the other column the words, Promises for the next life. When I find a promise, I note the reference in the promise under one of the two columns. I have found repeated in different places in the scriptures two major promises for reading and studying the scriptures that pertain to the next life. One is exaltation, the other is eternal life. For example, Nephi said, Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, ye shall have eternal life. The surprising discovery was that most promises that come to us for reading and studying the scriptures pertain to mortality. Three categories of promises to consider are promises of power, promises of increase, and other promises. Time will permit me to cite but a few of these. Consider the following five promises of power. 1. Power to overcome evil. Nephi taught, Whoso would hearken to the word of God and would hold fast to it, the fiery darts of the adversary could not overpower them unto blindness. 2. Power to live righteously. And thus Alma did preach the word of God unto them to stir them up in remembrance of their duty. The psalmist said, The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 3. Power to teach convincingly. Alma and the sons of Mosiah had searched the scriptures diligently, and when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. To Hiram Smith the Lord said, First seek to obtain my word, then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. 4. Power to call down the powers of heaven. Jacob said that we search the prophets. And our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. 5. Power to change the heart and disposition. Samuel taught the Nephites that the Lamanites were led to believe the Holy Scriptures, which are written, which leadeth them to faith on the Lord, unto repentance, which faith and repentance bringeth a change of heart unto them. Three marvelous promises. Consider now the following promises of increase. One, increase in hope and joy. The Apostle Paul taught that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Two, increase in spirituality. The preaching of the Word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just. Three, increase in knowledge and understanding. Nephi taught that the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. To Joseph Smith the Lord said, The Holy Scriptures are given of me for your instruction. 4. Increase in the power of discernment. The word of God is quick and powerful, which shall divide us under all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil. And whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. 5. Increase in testimony. From the Doctrine and Covenants. 
you can testify that you have heard my voice and know my words. In addition to these general categories of promises of power and increase, there are other promises such as, For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success. And as Joseph Smith said, Faith comes by hearing the word of God. President Howard W. Hunter has said, When we read and study the scriptures, benefits and blessings of many kinds come to us. This is the most profitable of all study in which we should engage. May we remember also the promises. I testify that the scriptures are the word of God. I love them. I testify that God lives. He is our Father. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith just as he said they did. President Ezra Taft Benson is God's prophet today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Someone said parting is such sweet sorrow. That's the feeling that we have today. Traditionally, the president of the Church, the Lord's prophet, seer, and revelator, provides the concluding expressions of a general conference and gives his blessing to all. Humbly and respectfully, I respond to the assignment to represent him at this time. This has been a glorious conference. The prayers have been sincere and from the heart. The music and singing have lifted us heavenward and given us an upward reach we thought perhaps was beyond our grasp. The brethren who have spoken and Sister Jepson have declared the word of God and touched our hearts with their inspired messages. We're all better for having been a part of the conference. President Benson's chair has remained unoccupied during the conference sessions, which brings some sadness to our hearts. His ready smile, the wave of his hand, the declarations of truth that have marked his influence have been missed. However, President Benson, we're pleased and grateful that you've been a part of the conference through television. Our hearts go out to you in the passing of your beloved eternal companion, Flora. How thankful we are for the sacred covenant that binds you two sweethearts together for all eternity. The entire Church joins in a mighty prayer to our Heavenly Father that you may be cradled in the palm of his hand and blessed according to your need and his divine purposes. We sustain you, President Benson. We follow you. We love you, our prophet. President Benson revered President David O. McKay, who supervised his missionary labors in Great Britain those long years ago. President McKay closed a conference with these words, As we come to this parting hour, I hope that the teachings and life of the Master seem to you all the more beautiful, more necessary, and more applicable to human happiness than ever before. Accepting Him as my Redeemer, Savior, and Lord, I accept His gospel as the plan of salvation, as the one perfect way to human happiness and peace. President Joseph Fielding Smith, for whom President Benson had such great love, said as he concluded a conference, Now I pray that our Father in Heaven will bless His people, bless them abundantly and in full measure. Said he, 
I pray that the saints shall stand firm against the pressures and enticements of the world, that they shall put first in their lives the things of God's kingdom, that they shall be true to every trust and keep every covenant. President Harold B. Lee, boyhood friend and companion, and later esteemed associate of President Benson in the Lord's work, declared, I can't leave this conference without saying to you that I have a conviction that the Master hasn't been absent from us on these occasions. This is His Church. He isn't an absentee Master. He is concerned about us. He wants us to follow where He leads. President Spencer W. Kimball, who was sustained as an Apostle and member of the Council of the Twelve at the same time as President Benson, closed a general conference by saying, As each one of these wonderful sermons has been rendered, I have listened with rapt attention, and I have made up my mind that I shall go home and be a better man than I have ever been before. President Benson, these have been declarations from four of your associates who have been an ongoing influence in your life. You yourself have said in a similar close of a conference, May we all go to our homes rededicated to the sacred mission of the Church, as so beautifully set forth in these conference sessions, to invite all to come unto Christ, yea, come unto Christ, and be perfected in Him. My brothers and sisters, I know the love President Benson has for you, for the Lord, and for His work. He would urge us to keep the commandments, sanctify our homes, and perfect our lives. May we in unity, as members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, achieve these three objectives. Doing so will bring joy to our souls, peace to our prophet's heart, and the smile of God's approval on our efforts. Sing we now, at parting, one more strain of praise to our Heavenly Father, sweetest songs we'll raise for His loving kindness, for His tender care. Let our songs of gladness rend and fill this Sabbath air. The work is true. Jesus is the Christ. Ezra Taft Benson is a prophet of God. I so testify and pray that Heaven's blessings may attend all of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As this conference comes to a close, I wish to speak of a priceless heritage. I acknowledge the faithful pioneers in all of the countries of the world who have helped establish the Church in their lands. First-generation members of the Church are indeed pioneers. They are and have been men and women of deep faith and devotion. Today, however, I speak primarily of the priceless legacy which belongs to the descendants of all pioneers but especially to those who came into this valley and settled in Utah and other parts of Western America. 
In celebration of July 24th this year, we joined the Saints of the Riverton, Wyoming Stake. Under the direction of President Robert Lorimer and his counselors, the youth and youth leaders of that stake reenacted part of the handcart trek which took place in 1856. We started early in a four-wheel drive van and went first to Independence Rock, where we picked up the Mormon Trail. We saw Devil's Gate a few miles up the road. Our souls were subdued when we arrived at the hallowed ground of Martin's Cove, the site where the Martin Handcart Company, freezing and starving, waited for the rescue wagons to come from Salt Lake City. About 56 members of the Martin Handcart Company perished there from hunger and cold. It was an emotional experience to see the Sweetwater River crossing where most of the 500 members of the company were carried across the icy river by three brave young men. Later, all three boys died from the effects of the terrible strain and great exposure of that crossing. When, Brigham, when President Brigham Young heard of this heroic act, he wept like a child and later declared publicly, That act alone will ensure C. Allen Huntington, George W. Grant, and David P. Kimball an everlasting salvation in the celestial kingdom of God, worlds without end. We went further along the trail to the site where the members of the Willie Handcart Company were rescued. We felt we were standing on holy ground. At that site, 21 members of that party died from starvation and cold. We continued to travel up over Rocky Ridge, 7,300 feet high. This is the highest spot on the Mormon Trail. The two-mile ascension to Rocky Ridge gains over 700 feet in altitude. It was very difficult for all of the pioneers to travel over Rocky Ridge. It was particularly agonizing for the members of the Willie Handcart Company, who struggled over that ridge in the fall of 1856 in a blizzard. Many had worn shoes, and the sharp rocks caused their feet to bleed, leaving a trail of blood in the snow. As we walked over Rocky Ridge, two square nails and an old-style button were picked up. No doubt these objects were shaken loose going over the sharp rocks. My soul was sobered to be in that historic spot. Several of my ancestors crossed that ridge, though none were in the handcart companies. Not all of my forebears who started in the great exodus to the west made it even to the rocky ridge. Two of them died at winter quarters. As I walked over rocky ridge, I wondered if I have sacrificed enough. 
In my generation, I have not seen so much sacrifice by so many. I wonder what more I should have done and should be doing to further this work. A few miles farther at Radium Springs, we caught up with 185 young people and their leaders from the Riverton Stake who had been pulling handcarts in reenactment of the handcart treks. We bore testimony of the faith and heroism of those who struggled in agony over that trail 136 years ago. We went on to Rock Creek Hollow where the Willie Handcart Company made camp. Thirteen members of the Willie Company who perished from cold, exhaustion, and starvation are buried in a common grave at Rock Creek Hollow. Two additional members who died during the night are buried nearby. Two of those buried at Rock Creek Hollow were heroic children of tender years, Bodil Mortensen, age nine, from Denmark, and James Kirkwood, age 11, from Scotland. Bodil apparently was assigned to care for some small children as they crossed Rocky Ridge. When they arrived at camp, she must have been sent to gather firewood. She was found frozen to death, leaning against the wheel of her handcart, clutching sagebrush. Let me tell you of James Kirkwood. James was from Glasgow, Scotland. On the trip west, James was accompanied by his widowed mother and three brothers, one of whom, Thomas, was 19 and crippled and had to ride in the handcart. James' primary responsibility on the trek was to care for his little four-year-old brother, Joseph, while his mother and oldest brother, Robert, pulled the cart. As they climbed Rocky Ridge, it was snowing and it was bitter cold, and there was a bitter cold wind blowing. It took the whole company 27 hours to travel 15 miles. When little Joseph became too weary to walk, James, the older brother, had no choice but to carry him. Left behind, the main group, James and Joseph, made their way slowly to camp. When the two finally arrived at the fireside, James, having so faithfully carried out his task, collapsed and died from exposure and overexertion. Also heroic were the rescuers who responded to President Brigham Young's call in the October 1856 General Conference. President Young called for 40 young men, 60 to 65 teams of mules or horses, wagons loaded with 24,000 pounds of flour to leave the next day or two to bring in those people now on the plains. The rescuers went swiftly to relieve the suffering travelers. When the rescued sufferers got close to Salt Lake Valley, Brigham Young convened a meeting on this block. 
He directed the saints in the valley to receive the sufferers into their homes, make them comfortable, and administer food and clothing to them. Said President Young, Some of you will find them with their feet frozen to their ankles. Some are frozen to their knees. Some have their hands frosted. We want you to receive them as your own children and have the same feeling for them. When the rescuers brought the Willie Hancart pioneers into this valley, it is recorded by Captain Willie. On our arrival there, the bishops of the different wards took every person not provided with a home into comfortable quarters. Some had their hands and feet badly frozen, but everything which could be done to alleviate their sufferings was done. Hundreds of citizens flocked around the wagons on their way through the city, cordially welcoming their brethren and sisters to their new home in the mountains. These excruciating experiences developed in these pioneers an unshakable faith in God. Said Elizabeth Horrocks Jackson Kingsford, But I believe the recording angel has inscribed in the archives of above, and that my sufferings for the gospel's sake will be sanctified unto me for my good. In addition to the legacy of faith bequeathed by those who crossed the plains, they also left a great heritage of love, love of God, and love of mankind. It is an inheritance of sobriety, independence, hard work, high moral values, and fellowship. It is a birthright of obedience to the commandments of God and loyalty to those whom God has called to lead this people. It is a legacy of forsaking evil, immorality, alternative lifestyles, gambling, selfishness, dishonesty, unkindness, addiction to alcohol and drugs are not part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in Utah, there is a voter decision about gambling to be made in a few weeks. The Church is not retreating from its stand on this issue. But as contests and issues heat up, we counsel members of the Church to be tolerant and understanding. We all have our moral agency, but if we use it unwisely, we must pay the price. President J. Reuben Clark, Jr. said, We may use our agency as to whether we will obey or disobey, and if we disobey, we must abide the penalty. I cannot help wondering why these intrepid pioneers had to pay for their faith with such a terrible price in agony and suffering. Why were not the elements tempered to spare them from their profound agony? I believe their lives were consecrated to a higher purpose through their suffering. Their love for the Savior was burned deep in their souls and into the souls of their children and their children's children. The motivation for their lives came from a true conversion in the center of their souls. As President Gordon B. Hinckley has said, when there are throbs in the heart of an individual Latter-day Saint, a great and vital testimony of the truth of this work, he will be found doing his duty in the Church.
Above and beyond the epic historical events they participated in, the pioneers found a guide to personal living. They found reality and meaning in their lives. In the difficult days of their journey, when the members of the Martin and Willie Hancart companies were coming west, they encountered some apostates from the Church who were returning from the west going back to the east. These apostates tried to persuade some in the companies to turn back. A few did turn back, but the great majority of the pioneers went forward to a heroic achievement in this life and to eternal life in the life hereafter. Francis Webster, a member of the Martin Company, stated, Every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives, for we became acquainted with Him in our extremities. I hope that this priceless legacy of faith left by the pioneers will inspire all of us to more fully participate in the Savior's work of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of His children. You who are among the descendants of these noble pioneers have a priceless heritage of faith and courage. If there are any of you who do not enjoy fellowship with us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we invite you to seek to know what instilled such great faith in your ancestors and what motivated them to willingly pay such a terrible price for their membership in this Church. To those who have been offended or lost interest or who have turned away for any reason, we invite all of you to join in full, full fellowship again with us. The faithful members, with all their faults and failings, are humbly striving to do God's holy work across the world. We need your help in the great struggle against the powers of darkness so prevalent in the world today. In becoming part of this work, you can satisfy the deepest yearnings of your souls. You can come to know the personal comfort that can be found in seeking the sacred and holy things of God. You can enjoy the blessings and covenants administered in the holy temples. You can have great meaning and purpose in your lives, even in the profane world in which we live. You can have strength of character so that you can act for yourselves and not be acted upon. A few years ago, the First Presidency of the Church issued the invitation to all to come back. We are aware of some who are inactive, of others who have become critical or are prone to find fault, and of those who have been disfellowshipped or excommunicated because of serious transgressions. To all such we reach out in love. We are anxious to forgive in the spirit of him who said, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. We encourage Church members to forgive those who may have wronged them, to those who have ceased activity, and to those who have been become critical, we say, come back. Come back and feast at the table of the Lord and taste again the sweet and satisfying fruits of fellowship with the saints. 
We're confident that many have wanted to return but have felt awkward about doing so. We assure you that you will, be, you will find open arms to receive you and willing hands to assist you. At the close of this great conference, and on behalf of my brethren, I sincerely and humbly reiterate that request, and we open our arms to you. I so declare in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I would like to express my love and appreciation to my eternal companion for the support and love that uh, she has completely uh, extended to me through all these years of membership in this church. I suppose many of you already know I came from the Philippines, home to close to 67 million people, the Pearl of the Orient, but now a land devastated by earthquakes, typhoons, floods, and even volcanic eruptions. But I will not, however, talk about the calamities that have caused much hardship and tested the fate of our people. But I would rather talk about the great spiritual blessings that has been experienced in abundance as the gospel is spread in the land. The restored gospel was first introduced by Latter-day Saints servicemen and women while serving in the Philippines near the end of World War II. But missionary work officially started in the Philippines from the records of the Southern Forest Mission on April 28, 1961, when President Gordon B. Hinckley, then a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles, met with a small group of members at the American War Memorial Cemetery in the suburbs of Manila, invoking the blessings of the Lord on missionary work in the Philippines. Before giving his prayer, President Hinckley, in a brief talk, made this prophetic statement. What we begin here will affect the lives of thousands and thousands of people in this island republic. And its effect will go on from generation to generation for great and everlasting good. After his brief remarks, President Hinckley offered a prayer where he said, among others, quote, We invoke thy blessing, Father dear, upon the missionaries who shall come here, that thy spirit may touch their hearts, that their lives may be clean and virtuous, that their examples may be marvelous before the people, that they may be blessed as it were with the gift of thanks, that they shall speak the language of the people, that they shall work with singleness of purpose to thy name's honor and glory, that they shall go forth without fear, that none shall stay them, and that they shall declare with teaching and testimony the restoration of thy holy work for the blessing of thy children. Father, give them joy and courage and faith and satisfaction in their labors and make them fruitful. We invoke thy blessing upon the people of this land, that they shall be friendly and hospitable and kind and gracious 
to those who shall come here, and that they, yea, Lord, we pray, that there shall be many thousands who shall receive this message and be blessed thereby. Wilt thou bless them with receptive minds and understanding hearts, and with faith to receive and with courage to live the principles of the gospel, and with a desire to share with others the blessings which they shall receive. We pray that there shall be many men, faithful, good, virtuous, true men, who shall join the Church and who shall receive the blessings of the priesthood, and who shall accept and grow in leadership, that thy work here shall be handled largely by local brethren, under the direction of those who hold the keys in this, this, in this day and time, according to the law and order of the Church. A few days after that historic meeting, the first four full-time missionaries arrived from the Southern Far East Mission based in Hong Kong. From a handful of members in 1961, the Church in the Philippines has since grown at a remarkable rate, now increasing by more than 2,000 members per month, as a result of close correlation by the full-time missionaries and members. Membership is now 300,000 distributed in 48 stakes, 65 districts, and 13 missions. Five of the 13 mission presidents, all the eight regional representatives, all stakes and district presidents are now native Latter-day Saints. 60 to 70 percent of the more than 2,000 full-time missionaries now laboring in the field are also native Latter-day Saints. And now standing majestically in an elevated ground overlooking a valley where thousands, hundreds of thousands live in the heart of Metro Manila is the Manila Philippines Temple. Surely the prayers of President Hinckley is being fulfilled as thousands of young men and women as well as elderly couples are responding to the clarion call of the Lord that it is my will that you should proclaim my gospel from land to land and from city to city, yea, on those regions round about where it has not been proclaimed. After three years working closely as mission president with these young, devoted, upright, and virtuous missionaries, I'm humbled and grateful for the good they do. These young ambassadors of the Lord live the comfort of home, and companionship of loved ones, and go to foreign land or places far from home, bearing strong testimonies of the Savior, teaching the gospel with faith and sure knowledge of its truthfulness. My testimony has been strengthened as I see the great effort of missionaries to, among others, overcome homesickness, adapt to new environments, new customs, new language, which they must learn, and food so different from mother's home-cooked meal, in their noble desire to proclaim the gospel to the world. I am a witness to the daily acts of sacrifices of these missionaries as they cheerfully endure hardship, like energy-sapping walks of many kilometers, or riding on their bicycles under the heat of the burning sun or the cold monsoon rain and the discomfort of riding on fully loaded jeepneys driving at high speed along bumpy and dusty roads to reach teaching appointments on time. 
Indeed, our modern-day heralds of truth, laboring in the Philippines and other lands, work hard and pray constantly to be worthy instruments of the Lord in testifying and challenging all to come unto Christ through repentance and baptism, teaching them to do all things which the Lord has commanded. Like the sons of Messiah, they had searched the Scriptures diligently that they might know the words of God. And they had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. And they did suffer much, both in body and in mind, such as hunger, thirst, and fatigue, and also much labor in the spirit. But after the completion of an honorable mission, like Ammon, one of the sons of Messiah, these missionaries can also say, My joy is full, yea, my heart is brim with joy, and I will rejoice in my God. We are also witnessing the literal fulfillment of the prayers and blessings for the people of our land given by President Hinckley that lovely April morning in 1961. For many thousands have been touched by the Spirit as the gospel message is brought to many homes by committed missionaries with the help of members who willingly share the blessings of their church membership. We are often asked the reasons behind this phenomenal growth in membership. I could only venture some opinions. First, that being perhaps the only Christian country in, in Asia for many centuries now had prepared the people for the coming of the gospel. That the Philippines being considered the third largest English-speaking country in the world certainly made it easier for people to understand the message of the gospel and is the reason for the fast development of leadership skills of its members. But more important is the humble nature of the people and their dependence on the Lord for the things they stand in need of, making them receptive to the prompting of the Spirit. Because of the economic difficulties experienced in the Philippines, the gospel is the answer, and rightly so, to their prayers for a better way of life. As a result of the gospel-centered lives of many Latter-day Saints, people around them see changes in their lives that, in turn, give them hope. Member families may still live in humble homes with dirt or bamboo floors and walls. But because of their positive response to the gospel plan and through their obedience to the Lord's commandment, they receive the promised blessings. And as a result, people see in these families changes like their living condition being more sanitary, are healthier, more educated, always ready and delighted to help others, grateful for what they have, no matter how humble, and generally happier. They have obeyed the Lord's counsel to learn of me and listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. Generally, however, the faith, devotion, and living of correct gospel principles by the members have improved their lives, not only spiritually, but also temporally. For did not the Lord say, 
that the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. That the Lord's blessing continues to bless our people with joy and peace of mind as they obey His commandments and the counsels of our leaders in the midst of adversity is my humble prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.